This is Perspectives. It's the show where we have a conversation about the ways in which we might be different, only to discover how much more we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. In the early 1900s, American cities were teeming with immigrants whose children toiled in factories and lived in overcrowded tenements in neighborhoods that were plagued by disease, poverty, violence, and crime. In response, a group of social reformers embarked on a mission to protect children and to mold them into productive law-abiding citizens. These folks were known as child savers. They were overwhelmingly white and well-off reformers. Their work laid the therapeutic foundation for what we now know of as family court. At its core, the great idea was that the judges would take the lead. They would provide whether preventive or rehabilitative, personalized justice for each and every child. My guest on the program today is Jane Spinnick. Jane's the Edward Ross Aranow, clinical professor of law emerita at Columbia Law School. She's with us today because of a book that she has written and something that she proffers. We're going to talk about it. And the book is called The End of Family Court, a book not only for lawyers, social workers, but for all of us who has a stake in our country's future. Professor Jane Spinnick, thanks for joining us on Perspectives. Thank you, Condice. I'm very happy to be here. Before we started our conversation, I asked you if you were getting feedback about how provocative your book might be considered. Is, is that what you're hearing? Well, I'm hearing a mix of things. There are a lot of people who have worked in this system for a very long time who think it needs to be radically changed because we are failing children and families in this country in, in using this court. And, and then there are people who disagree, who think that the way Maybe the court needs to be reformed a bit, but it's it's working okay, and we should just continue using it. I don't think that you you gave a great introduction um, to to the founding of the court, and and I think that over the last hundred and twenty four years, it hasn't done what it's supposed to do. When did you arrive at the conclusion that you proffer in the end of family court? that the best way to fix the system is to abolish the system. Talk to me about the core reasons behind that idea. Sure. When I think about abolition, I think about it as a mindset, a way of reforming that doesn't strengthen a system, but helps to deconstruct it and then create something newer and better. Um, when I started working on this book, I worked on it on and off for the last decade or so. And when I started, I really did think I could write a book about how to reform the court. I was involved in many reform efforts related to the family court. And I think I believe that if there was more due process. People in the court had lawyers, they had access to services that um, the court could be made into a better version of itself. But a couple things happened that really changed my mind. One was digging into the history of the court and finding that so many of the issues that we see today are that are problematic were problematic in the 1910s, the 1920s, the 1930s. And 
there was great resistance to changing the court then as there is now. So I wanted to be able to talk about why those, um, what was going on early on, we're still grappling with today. And of course I can talk more about that. The other thing was that there were many voices, particularly in the last five to eight years of, people with lived experience in the court, both young people and parents um, involved in family regulation, what is usually referred to as child welfare, as well as in the juvenile legal system, who were speaking out about their experiences and organizing around how um, to think differently about them as families, but also about how how to assist them and how not to harm them. And I would say that that really helped me to get to a place of deep understanding of how much harm has actually been caused by this court and the systems feeding into the court. When the courts were established, the intent was to protect children, to help them. What went wrong? Well, I think that the one of the reasons was to help them and to treat children differently than adults when they broke the law. We should still hold on to that. The Supreme Court, even our Supreme Court today, thinks that children are different than adults in legal proceedings. And we want to hold on to the idea that children are not the same as adults. But we don't need a whole court system for that. We just need to apply laws in ways that treat children differently. But the other purpose of the court was to intervene in those children's lives and later in their families' lives. And as you said at the very beginning, these courts started in cities that were flooded with immigrants. These immigrants were mostly from Southern and Eastern Europe. They were, quote, different than the white settlers who had come in earlier generations. They were quite racialized. They were seen as so different in their habits, in their clothing, in their culture, in their language that these earlier white reformers wanted to turn them into what they thought were proper Americans. And then- You when, mean assimilation. What? Assimilation. assimilation Absolute, yeah. Absolutely. And then as Black families moved North in the, in the early decades of the 20th century, and this court eventually moved South in those decades as well, then Black families who had previously been ignored by the court were now being brought into the court system, both young people for um, breaking the law or sometimes just for misbehaving in ways that people didn't like, and their families were brought into the court again to kind of fix them, to make them more like what, what these reformers thought were proper Americans. And what I discovered in, in digging that deeply into the court was that 
what we talk about today in terms of Black families being disproportionately brought into the court system and into the child welfare system, and young people disproportionately being brought into young young people of color, youth, particularly Black youth and Native American youth being brought in disproportionately and then treated more harshly. Well, that's nothing new. That was happening in 1910, in 1920, in 1930. And the court was a part of that. It was not taking the steps necessary to say, you know, we're we're harming disproportionately these impoverished families and these families of color. In the book, you write about modern family court procedures and policies being intertwined with racism, classism, xenophobia. Talk to us about how these factors are perpetuated within the family court system. Well, there there is a, a statistic that is really hard to grapple with. Mm-hmm. Half of all Black children in this country, by the time they reach the age of 18, will have been investigated for, um, their parents will have been investigated for abuse or neglect. Half. So who are these children? They are millions of children. Now, a third of all children will be investigated by the time that they're they're 18. But you can see even there the disproportionality. Most of these families that are investigated are poor. And they are without the kinds of supports in their communities that they need. So just like at the beginning of the 20th century, when there were reports about families being segregated, families not having health care, not having medical care, not having decent housing, not having good schools or employment opportunities, those same issues apply to the families who are being investigated today. And what's you know, for me, even though I have worked in this system for 45 years, I'm still shocked at the inability to ask ourselves as a society, as a nation, as these systems, we're we're still doing so wrong by so many of the people in this country, why aren't we thinking about doing things better? In addition, uh, what's also really hard for people to understand is we've been taught to, if we see something, say something, pick up the phone, and call the child hotline and say, I'm worried about this child. And instead of doing what a US government advisory board said in 1990, that our system 
is failing. And instead of reporting families, we should be supporting families. But what happens with reporting is that, that the vast number of reports are never sustained, but families are still investigated. They're, the, the state intervenes in their lives to figure out what's going on. And even if they never end up in family court, their families have been disrupted and it makes parents afraid of going to people for assistance, whether it's the school teacher or the doctor or the person in childcare, because they're so afraid that if they express concern, something about their family, whether it's, you know, not having enough food or or the terrible conditions in their home that the landlord won't fix, that they'll be held responsible. And so we undermine the ability to help families by having our first response being reporting. How did the system turn into one that is not driven by care for children, but in many cases driven by money and profit? Well, <laughs> that's a hard question to answer. Uh, I, I think that what has happened, particularly in the last, I would say the last uh, quarter of the 20th century, maybe the last third into this century, is that um, systems working with families, child welfare system, child protective systems, juvenile legal systems, were often rewarded for intervening in families' lives. So a good example is that in a child um, neglect or abuse case, if the child has been in care for a certain amount of time, um, whether or not there has been assistance to their family, um, to get the child out of foster care, there is something called an adoption bonus. That is, if the agency moves toward terminating parental rights and having this child adopted, they get a financial bonus for that adoption. They get no financial bonus for working hard to reunify a family. Many, I mean, that's just one example. Even when even when um, there are funding streams that are supposed to be used for prevention, they are often connected to some state agency through which this money has to go. And so there's a, you know, it becomes, if you're drawing down, whether you're a federal agency or a state agency or a local agency, if you're drawing down this money and kind of skimming off the top for all the administrative costs you have, which you have, the ultimate amount of money that reaches the people who need it is much smaller. And it just feeds upon itself so that, that 
you know, it's very hard for people to imagine doing things differently. And I do think that that the challenge for ideas around um, either reforms or what I call non-reformist reforms, which are reforms that don't strengthen the system but help to dismantle it, we have to address the fact that these systems um, employ thousands, if not millions of people who need jobs. So you can't just tear it down. You have to say, how do we think differently about providing assistance so that the people who are currently working in these systems have a way to to transform into someone else and be employed by a system that really is helping and not harming families. If you could wave that magic wand and begin to dismantle this system, how would you go about doing it? And what would appear in its place? Well, Again, looking at the history, what has what have people said about the system from the very beginning? That most of the help that families need is in communities. They they need support that that makes them stronger. And we spend about fifteen billion dollars a year taking children out of their families. If we took that $15 billion a year and invested it in communities and helped communities figure out what they want and what they need, we would be, we would be a long way toward, toward solving some of these problems. But we also have to address other aspects of how we treat children and families. So the international standard for juvenile responsibility in legal proceedings is 14. Most states in this country have no lower age limit for when a child can be arrested and brought to court. You can bring an eight, a nine-year-old into court. What are we doing when, when we say, when we do that? When we bring a small child in and expect them to actually understand what, not only what they did wrong, but, but what needs to happen to them. No, the international standard of 14 is because by 14, you can begin to understand that and work with a lawyer who, who is advising you. You can't do that at age eight, and yet we arrest little kids in this country. We also still bring into court what are called status offenses, which most people in this country don't even realize exist. These are young people who are misbehaving but not breaking the law. They're called status offenses today because the status is their age. They're under 18. In the original court, they were just considered delinquent. Mm -hmm. um, but that that difference during the 1970s split off that jurisdiction. So today we bring them around 100,000 young people 
into court for what? For running away from home, for truancy, for not listening to their parents, for underage drinking or or having sex underage, things that all adolescents do, maybe not all of them, but at least some of them, and yet we only punish some of those adolescents. Who are they? They are the ones who are most likely to be surveilled by their schools, by law enforcement. And so again, you've got a disproportionate number of BIPOC children being brought into this court. And, and what every judge will tell you, almost everyone across the country is that they hate these cases because they know they can't, they're, they're not gonna solve a problem by bringing this young person into court. You know, why is it the young person truant? Well, maybe they can't read, maybe they have dyslexia, maybe, maybe they're bullied. I mean, there might be all kinds of reasons. This, this young person doesn't belong in court. And so just eliminating that jurisdiction would would be an amazing step forward um, and providing those kinds of supports, taking whatever money's being saved and providing those supports in the community. So there are lots of steps we could take. What you propose is highly complex. What is it that you're wanting readers to take away from your book, The End of Family Court, and what can the average citizen do to make this situation better in his or her community? Well, I want, I want people to understand that this court has failed and that we have to move beyond reform. It's not that, that a parent or a young person never has to be brought to court. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that this court, which was created supposedly to solve problems, has not done that. And so we need to think about when someone has to come to court, it has to be a court of law. But also, your listeners and people in different communities need to listen hard when there's some story about some parent or some young person and understand that most of the families who find themselves in this court and most of the young people who find themselves in this court are not the the terrible, terrible stories that we read in the media. And what they need are supports. There are lots of grassroots efforts right now around the country, and I'm sure they exist in Atlanta, where people are really questioning the way we've done things. And, and I urge people to look for them. There's something called the Movement for Family Power. There's something called Upend. There are a whole variety of... Um, local organizations that are really trying to think differently and to influence lawmakers to think differently about how we want to support young people and families. It is a hard book to read, but it is an important book to read. The book is The End of Family Court, 
How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. The author is Jane Spinnick, a professor of law emerita at Columbia Law School. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program produced with you in mind. If there's a guest or an issue you'd like to hear me explore, I hope you'd let me know. The easiest way to connect with me is on social media. Just slip me a DM or send me a message. Search Condes Presley on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And yeah, I know you're asking, how do you spell Condes? C-O-N-D-A-C-E. And Presley has two S's. That's P-R-E-S-S-L-E-Y. Friends, I appreciate your listening. Be sure to listen again next week at this same time as we explore new perspectives. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.